So we'll just have a quick word of explanation of, of where, where we're going in terms of our studies. We've been in Samuel for a while. I don't actually know when we started, but it was a while ago. And uh, we're coming up on the Advent season. So the first uh, Sunday of Advent is actually the last Sunday of November, which is coming up in two weeks. And we're actually going to do this year what we've done in, in years past, and we're going to take those four weeks uh, to especially focus our attention on, on some Advent passages. And this year, uh, we're going to look at, at four different passages from Paul's letters that, that have been a point of meditation for Christians down through, down through the, the centuries. So uh, we're going to take these that, that actually come out of the Book of Common Prayers reading. So for almost 500 years, Christians have meditated on these, on these passages. And we're going to take those for the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And then uh, after, after Christmas, we'll come back to 1 Samuel and finish it out at some point. We'll finish out 1 Samuel. And then from there, we're going to go in and study the Gospel of John. So that, that will be the plan when we get to the end of 1 Samuel. Um, we, we like to go back and forth between Old and New Testament. We like to say it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian, so we need both of those. Um, and that and that'll be our program. Maybe after John, we'll come and catch 2 Samuel. Uh, who knows? But, but that's kind of the program going forward. So we have this week and next week in 1 Samuel. And then we'll, we'll uh, jump out of 1 Samuel for a bit for our, for our Advent series. Um, which, which brings us to what we're going to study this morning. Um, I, I was planning this morning on finishing 1 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, however, as happens at times, which you, you're familiar with, that, that is not going to take place. And so I thought then uh, in the course of study that we would just focus our attention on verses 15 to 18 because it's such a rich passage. Uh, there's so much there for us on the subject of friendship. I thought, well, we'll just spend our time in verses 15 to 18. So then I got studying that and I thought, well, we're not going to make that either. Uh, and so this morning we're actually going to get through one and a half verses. Uh, we're going to look at verse 15 into verse 16, into the first half of verse 16. And then next week we'll come back and finish through verse 18. So we're not going quickly, but we are going deeply. And I, and I think this will repay our study as we consider what's here. And I'll give you a bit of a rationale for, for spending the time on this. Um, but, but what's in this little section, again, around David and Jonathan is, is extremely rich as we consider the subject of friendship. And so, and so that's where we're going to focus our attention today. You can, you can follow along as we study. It won't be hard to follow along because it's not very much space. Um, but that, that's okay. So um, we'll, we'll think about it in this way. A few weeks ago, we spent some time back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you remember, reflecting on the friendship that Jonathan and David shared together. Uh, so you remember how Jonathan is King Saul's son, and, and even though, in a sense, it means totally giving up any kind of generational right that Jonathan might have to the throne, being Saul's son, Jonathan has completely supported the fact that the Lord has anointed David as king. Uh, so Jonathan has supported uh, God's design for the monarchy of Israel in his own yielding to David as the king that God has chosen, unlike his father Saul. Saul hasn't yielded to that, quite the opposite. Um, but, but along with Jonathan yielding to David as king, we've also seen that David and Jonathan share this extraordinary bond of friendship. In fact, even earlier in chapter 18, we were told that David and Jonathan were knit together in soul. So they were very close friends. And then, and then back in chapter 20, we had that example there of David and Jonathan's friendship as we were given this, this wonderful perspective on what friendship really looks like. So we talked back then about our own need for friendship 
and we talked about the nature of friendship from that passage, and then we also talked about how the friendship reflected in that passage is really a pointer in, in the sense that, that what's amazing about God's purposes for friendship is that they ultimately point forward to the Lord Jesus, and God the Son, who comes and is the perfect friend to us. Uh, not only does Jesus call us friends in John chapter 15, but at the cross Jesus exercises the ultimate act of friendship as He lays down His life in order that we could have life. Uh, so again, back in chapter 20, we talked about the need, the nature, and then the pointer of friendship that's reflected in the truth of that passage with, with da uh, David and Jonathan. And here in chapter 23, as Jonathan and David meet again, actually it's the last time, at least the last recorded time, that they'll ever see each other. But as Jonathan and David meet again, albeit briefly, uh, we revisit this subject of friendship. And, and it's a subject that's very worth, uh, worthy of our consideration. Uh, you know the name Jonathan Edwards. He was one of the most, if not maybe the most, important American theologians and pastors of the 18th century. Uh, Jonathan Edwards had a daughter named Esther, who incidentally was the, the grandmother of Aaron Burr, the third vice president of the United States. But, but Esther Burr, uh, she made this comment on friendship in her, in her uh, writings to a friend. She said this, Nothing is more refreshing to the soul except communication with God Himself than the company and society of a friend. I'll just read that again. Nothing is more refreshing to the soul except communication with God Himself than the company and society of a friend. And no doubt we can, we can identify with a comment like that because to be in, a company, to be in the company of a friend... Uh, to be in the company of, 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 of a loyal and, and close companion is something that is extremely revitalizing for us. We know that. It's, it's refreshing in a very unique way. And as we come to our verses today, we see a very present need in David's life for the refreshment of this kind of friendship. Um, David, as we know, he's in the wilderness. And, and in the wilderness, uh, we find him there, not, not just in, in a physical sense, but there's a metaphorical sense in which this wilderness motif is applied. In fact, David himself takes the wilderness motif that way in Psalm 63, where he speaks to the Lord in one of his wilderness poems, and he says, My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David's presently in a very real physical situation in need of refreshment out in the wilderness, but, but not just physically, he's feeling this spiritually and emotionally as well. And in that condition of need, what we see taking place here is that Jonathan, David's best friend, David's closest friend, comes to him to give support. And we won't make it all this, this way, we'll save this part for next week, but we actually see that ultimately Jonathan is coming in order to strengthen David's hand in the Lord. That's a literal uh, rendering of, of, of verse 16 there. That's, that's the work that Jonathan has come to do. He's come to be an encouragement to David. And so, and so Jonathan, we see he comes to David in a very active way. He does what friends do. Uh, do. And in this, we find a very rich picture of, of Jonathan's active care for David in David's wilderness experience. And, and as we consider it, uh, this, can, this can serve us really well. Uh, another pastor from an earlier generation, he made the comment uh, describing things in, in very wildernessy terms. Just, just listen to what he says. He says, This world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. That doesn't sound very positive, but we can at least identify with that in different seasons of our life. That sounds very wilderness-ish. 
The world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. And then he says, the brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Isn't that a great statement? Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. And as we see from this passage, it's exactly this kind of friendship that Jonathan exercises towards David. And again, as we take the time this week and next week to to meditate on this, it's friendship like this that we want to cultivate among our own community as a church together. And we want to do this because ultimately, it's, it's the active friendship portrayed here that Jesus himself unfailingly personifies as our true and ever-present helper. And and it's friendship like this that we're called to extend to one another because we need it. We we need friendships like this in the ups and downs of life. We feel our need for it. We need to exercise it. And we need to be the recipients of this kind of concerned and loyal care. And so again, uh, we come to a passage like this and, and we just can't help but spend some time and let it percolate in our own hearts and in our community life together. We need the word that's here for us this morning. And so we're going to think about uh, this section where Jonathan uh, meets David again. We'll think about this whole section under the, the broad heading, A Friend in the Wilderness, although we'll have to call it Part 1 this week, A Friend in the Wilderness, Part 1. Um, and we'll, we'll think about actually five aspects of friendship in total here. We're just going to get through the first two this week, and those first two that we can reflect in the words uh, timing, that's the first one, and the second one is entering. So timing as it pertains to friendship in the wilderness and entering. Those will be the two uh, we we focus on this morning. So uh, again, verses 15 and just into the first part of verse 16, that will be our our total text for the day. But we'll start in there and we'll think about this notion of of timing as it relates to to friendship, engaging in friendship. Um, So let me just, I'll just read those, those verses again just to have them fresh in our mind. In verse 15, we read that, Uh, David was in the wilderness of Ziph in Horish when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David. We'll frame frame things uh, from those those verses today. Now now one thing that can be helpful, uh, in fact this is going to be very important in just a little bit to make the the main point of the the text here, but one thing that can be helpful is to know that the, the two halves of verse 15 are actually in the opposite order. In the, in the Hebrew text. The CSB has put them in, in the order they're in to help smooth it out, to help make it easier to read, which is, which is, which is fine and, and good. But when studying, it's good to know that, that one of the ways the Hebrew language emphasizes things is to put something that's most important right out front in a sentence. Its word order isn't like, it's not clean subject, verb, object agreement in the Hebrew language. It's messier than that. And one of the ways Hebrew uses a, a highlighter, if you like, or puts it in italics for us, is to put the most important thing out in front of the sentence. And, and in the first word in verse 15 in Hebrew is the word saw. Saw. Now, now, English uh, makes this a little messier, so we have to talk a little bit like Yoda to make this work, but, but I'm going to do it just so you catch what's going on here. This will become important. So, so verse 15 reads, saw David that Saul had come out to seek his life, and then we read David was in the wilderness in Horesh. So the very first thing we're told, and even that's emphasized, is that David saw Saul was out to get him. And, and there's purpose to that emphasis 
And even as a, as, a, as a reader, immediately we recognize that there must be some kind of purpose in emphasizing this because why are we being told that Saul is out to kill David again? Why, why in the world would that need to be mentioned at all, let alone emphasized in terms of what David saw was happening? Why would we need to know this? Because this is not new news that Saul is out hunting David. Saul out to get David has been the content of the last five chapters. It, it seems like this is the main theme of every single section we're in. Saul's hunting David. He's out to kill him. Or if he's not out to kill him, he's commissioning others to go out to kill him. Anybody who helps David, Saul's out there trying to find them and kill them too. So we know what's going on. Saul is hunting David. Right? And yet, here we have this emphasis. David saw that Saul was, was coming out to kill him. Did David not see this before? No, no, of course David saw that. David knew this very well. We know David knows Saul's after him. And nonetheless, this emphasis is made. But the emphasis is purposeful because this sets us up to pick up on important details uh, even as we think this out. So, so, so just if we think this out for a moment, we notice that the narrator is really helping us come to a renewed, maybe we could even say an, an increased level of anxiety as the reader of this narrative as we consider David's position again. That David is in this renewed situation of vulnerability. Whatever's been happening, things have been revitalized for David in terms of his awareness of Saul's intentions for him. There's this emphasis in that he sees there's an increased intensity here in Saul's pursuit. There's a kind of renewed vigor. So for David, the level of concern is increasing and the narrator is bringing us along and feeling that increased sense of angst as David sees the situation that he's in. And, and, and in this, we see in the immediacy of the circumstances, David, David sees that Saul is coming and is renewed in his own position of vulnerability. And, and in that position of vulnerability, especially as we read this in the flow of, of this chapter and even the broader narrative, we, we can't help but notice really the, the deprivation of relationship that David must be experiencing at this point, especially in this condition of re renewed angst that, 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 that's going on here in this section. So, so remember from last week, verses 1 to 14, as we think about the relationships that are uh, surrounding David at the moment, in verses 1 to 14, uh, David, at great risk to himself and those with him, David went and rescued the people of Keilah from the Philistines. And then, when that work of deliverance was done and David was inquiring of the Lord, you remember what the Lord revealed to David about the people of Keilah. What are the people of Keilah going to do with David when Saul comes looking for him? Are they going to shelter the one who's just delivered them in their walled city? No. The Lord reveals that they're going to actually betray David over to Saul if David sticks around there. So the people that David just exercised himself very bravely to save are the people who are now going to simply turn on him. They, they, would be very, they would be very fine to just betray him over to Saul for whatever their reasons may be. So, so here's David in a place of renewed vulnerability. And in terms of relationships, the people David just saved were guaranteed to betray him if he's stuck around. So that's, that's depressing at the very least. That, that's not a safe place. It's not a place of refuge for him. He's going to be betrayed there. So there's that going on. And then the people who are currently with David... While they're on David's side, we were told in the last section, in verse 3, that they're afraid already based on the fact they're on the run from Saul. 
So the people who are with David are afraid. This group, you remember how they're described earlier, this, this group of people desperate, in debt, bitter of soul. They are willing to fight with David, and they're gathering with David, but they're a group that's fearful considering the situation that they're in on the run. And then if we look into the next section, uh, where, where we have more interaction with another group of Israelites, uh, those who are from Ziph, there, people there are very quick and ready to betray David as well when he's hiding in their territory. So, so as we think about David's current relational status with everybody around him, on either side of our immediate narrative, we have betrayers and betrayers. And then even the people who are with him are fearful, and on their best day, they're bitter of soul. So at least they're with him, but they're probably not going to be an encouraging person to have a cup of coffee with, right? This, this is the group that's around David at this time. So, so we put all this together, and, and we just see uh, David's increased pressure has got to be accompanied by a very profound and unique sense of isolation and loneliness. And that, and that to, to a certain degree, is probably something we can identify with, uh, even, even in our own experience. It's that experience of feeling so alone in a crowd. And there's all kinds of people around David, all kinds of people. But between the betrayal and the fear, it would have been very lonely for David. He would have been very isolated. Even the priest, Abiathar, who came to him, you remember what he has to say to him in the context of all this. He says, don't be afraid when you're with me, you're okay, which is a wonderfully confident thing to say. But nobody's speaking in encouraging ways to David. David is the one who's giving. David is the one who's leading. David is the one who's calling people to action, people who are afraid. It would have been very isolating for him. And we can have those kind of experiences, the, the loneliness in the crowd kind of experiences, especially when we're in wilderness situations ourselves. The, the people around us may be many. We have all kinds of people around us, uh, but, but they're not people who necessarily lift us up. Maybe they're even people like in David's case who, who even if they don't contribute to the turmoil, they might contribute to the general sense of discouragement. You're not alone, but you're very lonely. We put ourselves in David's situation, and we can think of our own experiences, and we can identify with this. And then it's into the immediacy and pressure of that situation in, in what we can call it, in, it, that, that, that Jonathan comes in such a way that we can only refer to as a kind of perfect timing of this close friend. There's amazing timing reflected here because there's David isolated even though he's with a bunch of people. He's isolated. He's very concerned, obviously, with the reality that Saul is out to get him again. That's emphasized. And then we read verse 16. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David. And, and here's, here's something that we need to emphasize. This is, this is just the genius of the Hebrew narrative. Remember, remember how with the first word of verse 15, there was the emphasis on the word saw. So that was saw David that Saul was out to get him. The beginning of verse 16, we have an emphasis again. And, and let me just woodenly put this together so you can see the, the, the intention of this. Again, we have to talk a bit like Yoda, but that's okay. So, so if we're putting verses 15 and 16 together, here we go. Saw David, that Saul was out to take his life when David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Harish. Verse 16, arose Jonathan, Saul's son, and went to David. So, so do you hear the emphasis there that's being made? Beginning of verse 15, saw David that he was in trouble, arose Jonathan, and went to David. It's a glorious picture of the timing of Jonathan's exercise of friendship. Right when David is peaking again in the most discouraging and scary possible circumstances, his best friend rises up and goes to him. 
And we, we just can't miss the fact that Saul, with all his military and, and intelligence networks and whatever it is, remember how Saul can just never find David? He never knows where David is. Jonathan, he knows right where David is. And he's able to go to him immediately in his time of need. David saw he was in trouble. Jonathan rose and went to David. Timing. So we can be in situations where we're, where we're not alone, but we have so many reasons to feel alone anyway. We're vulnerable without a sense of support. We know those seasons and those conditions of life, but we praise God for friends who exercise this kind of grace-filled timing and come to us in just the right moment. We've had those kind of friends. Right? This actually reminds me of, of, of one of the Apostle Paul's experiences that he recounts in 2 Corinthians 7. So, so in 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul says this. He says, when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way Conflicts on the outside, fears within. You just have to love the honesty of Paul's own reflection. It was, it was just all bad, Paul says. Verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. It's the timing of friends. Friends who come, friends who find us. It's amazing Jonathan didn't have to go hunting for David. He knew right where David was. Friends who come and who find us right in our hours of need. What a gift from God that is. Of course, on the grandest level, that's the gift that climaxes in Christ himself. Christ is the one who comes and finds us in our neediness. We know this, right? We may be surrounded by many people just as David was, but many people doesn't mean not lonely. It doesn't mean we're okay. Maybe we've been surrounded by many, but in truth, we feel very alone, lost, cornered, hopeless. Oftentimes, that is where the Lord Jesus finds us. That's where the Lord Jesus comes and ministers to us, bringing us the comforting presence. But we recognize that Jesus does that so often in our lives, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to be sure. We read about that in John 14. But with that, Jesus manifests His own friendship to us so often through the friendship of others in the church. Right? Remember what David and Jonathan's friendship is, is based on. It's based on that covenant before the Lord, like we've read in earlier chapters, and like we'll read again here next week in this chapter. That relationship that they have is a God-centered friendship uh, that's reflected in their commitment to one another. And it's God who uses those friendships, which is exactly what Paul said in that Second Corinthians passage. He, he says that, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us. How? How did God comfort Paul? By the arrival of Titus. God's kindness to us and the timing of our need is so often the gospel friendships of others, like, like David and Jonathan, two faithful men under God, and as Jonathan came and cared for him. God's kindness to us and the timing of needed friendship often manifests through the presence of a fellow Christian believer. Uh, we're facing trouble, and like Jonathan, that, that friend comes to us and, and brings us some relief. And we've probably had that experience. We've probably extended that experience our, ourselves at times. But, but we understand that the Lord Jesus is the greatest friend to us in the wilderness, and a manifestation of His friendship is the presence of others in the body of Christ who come when we're in need, who come just like, just like Jonathan does, who come at just the right time. David saw he was in trouble. Jonathan rose up and went to him. So, so here's a question for us under the text. Who do, who do you need to rise and go see? Who do you need to go see? This friendship business, it's serious in terms of our preservation. God help us if we're ever a church of people not alone but always lonely. That would be terrible. Who do you need to go see? Even if you're feeling your own need, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Even if you're feeling your own need to be seen, to be the object of somebody's care. Right? 
we can still ask ourselves the question, who do we need to go see? Because you just think of Jonathan here. Think of the angst Jonathan himself must have been in on a day-in and day-out kind of basis. You want to talk about lonely. Jonathan must have been lonely. There's Jonathan, just about the only one who is loyal to the Lord's king. Certainly seems to be the only one in Saul's, in Saul's company who's, who's loyal to God's chosen king. Jonathan would have never been, never been alone, but he always would have been lonely, supporting David as king in Saul's house. But even in Jonathan's own difficult situation, he's not giving himself permission to sit and wait for refreshment. He's getting up and he's going to give refreshment. Is there someone in need of refreshment uh, that you, you can provide? I, I ask me as I ask you. Right? Who among us do you need to call? Or who among us do you need to ask over for dinner or out for coffee this week? Uh, just to give an encouraging word. Just to tell them that you're praying for them and that you're there for them. Friendship in the wilderness is a matter of timing. E even the fact that in the providence of God we're on this text on this Sunday. That is an indicator that it is God's timely word of action for us. Who do we need to go see? Friendship in the wilderness is a matter of timing. That's the first thing. Uh, then secondly, and lastly for today, we can also say that friendship in the wilderness is a matter of entering. It's a matter of entering. So, so when we reflect on the uh, immediacy of David's situation, it's not just that David is under pressure and, and relatively alone, but we have to say something about the very real danger of things around David. So, so clearly there's the immediate danger that this verse 15 starts with is in the fact that Saul wants to kill David. That's an obvious danger. But then along with that, in verses 15 and 16, we're told about David's geographical location using dangerous language as well. Because we have the word, there, the word wilderness there again. And we've talked about how, how obviously wilderness paints a dangerous picture. It's not a place of rest. It's a place of crisis. Uh, just like we read last time, David's going to and fro. He's wandering in different places. Um, so we've got that wilderness word. And then we also have this word Horesh, um, there are two times actually, in verse 15 and in verse 16. And the way it looks in our Bibles makes it appear as if Horesh is a place. Maybe it is. It's not a place that's uh, ever been able to be uh, sorted out in terms of modern scholarship in Israel. Uh, but, but the word itself actually means heights that are wooded. So, so, so in other words, we're thinking about this in terms of dense forest with tall trees. That's what Horesh is, is talking about, which again is not a place that's particularly appealing unless you're on the run and you're trying to hide. Matthew and I were talking about this. How often as we're going through the David narrative do we hit the Robin Hood indications as, as we're going through this? There he is, away in the forest, try, being, being the good guy against the bad king. Very much here, we've got this forest, forest picture here where David is hiding out in the forest with his men. But that's not a place of safety. That's a place that reflects extraordinary danger. It's a chaotic, uncomfortable place. And yet... This is exactly the situation into which Jonathan enters to exercise his friendship towards David. Right? Jonathan goes to the person who's the object of his father's murder plans, and Jonathan goes to a place that is in and of itself dangerous and uncomfortable, to say the least. And with that, even by showing up, Jonathan puts himself at great risk personally because the last time Saul saw uh, that Jonathan was on David's side, remember, he threw a spear at him. So, so as Jonathan arose to go to David, for Jonathan, this friendship is risk all around. Jonathan's entering David's chaos. 
And as we think about what it really means to be a true friend, not, not least of all as we pursue the high expression of that friendship in the community of saints, as we pursue that in the church context, this, this is so critical for us to be mindful of because friendship uh, is, is, is such that, that any context where genuine loving care is going to be exercised, friendship in biblical categories is, is going to be rooted in costliness. Culturally, friendship is rooted in a kind of cost-benefit analysis. We notice that, don't we? Around us, culture, culture speaks about friendship in that kind of way. Uh, fr- friendship isn't a matter of, of being prepared to give uh, at any cost. Friendship is a matter of being prepared to give as long as we're also getting something back from that. Uh, there's that kind of give-and-take expectation, and if that's not there, well, then we probably can't really be friends. I feel like I've been giving a lot more lately. I'm probably not going to engage with that person for a while. They're so draining. But that's not what gospel friendship looks like. Friendship is not a matter of being prepared to give as long as we get an even amount back. Friendship is not, first of all, cost-benefit. Friendship in gospel terms must first be understood as cost, full stop. Friendship is cost. And in this case for Jonathan, that cost is the risk of entering the chaos and danger of David's experience to, as we'll see next week, strengthen David's hand in the Lord. But thinking about this, as we pursue friendship with one another in the, in the covenant community of God's people, this is a profound word to us. Because to be a friend is costly, and it means, at least in part, friendship means being prepared to exercise, exercise ourselves in the costly way of entering one another's chaos. It is possible to see a person in a, in a certain condition of need and, and know very well that a, that a deep need is present in their lives, but maybe that need is something we just can't understand. It seems disordered to us. It's chaotic, right? Or maybe that need is something that reflects elements that we just don't agree with. It reflects decisions that are foreign to us and, quite frankly, make us nervous. There's chaos there. Or maybe that need is something that would be a very vulnerable subject for us to talk about personally. There's pain there. That's, a, that's an element of chaos that's reflected in all of that. Or maybe that, that need is something that we just don't really want to extend our own resources to relieve because after all, you know, we're, we're in a stable place right now personally. Their place is tumultuous. I just don't really want to engage in that. Or maybe we don't want to engage just because it's scary and we don't know what to say. Or maybe it would, it would mess up our reputation to be their friend in these circumstances. Maybe it would disrupt our comfort. Maybe it would disturb our programs and plans. Maybe it would be entering chaos to be a friend to that one in need that I just don't want to tolerate at the moment. Danger can be present. But for the Christian believer, true friendship means entering that place of unrest for the well-being of the other. And we do that, just as Jonathan does here, because ultimately... That's what it looks like to imitate Jesus. We enter the chaos of the other as their friend because Jesus entered our chaos for us. He entered the experience of our total folly at the expense of his own life. And in that, he can say things like he does in John 15, which is just extraordinary. Now I call you friends. And what do friends do in John chapter 15? Well, Jesus tells us they love one another. Convenience is regularly an eroder of true friendship. Have you noticed this? Convenient. When it's easy to be somebody's friend, oftentimes those friendships are not the ones that prove to be lasting because convenience regularly shows up to be an eroder of friendship. But cost is always the marker of true friendship. 
You think of those friendships that are lasting in your life. You think of those friendships that are most meaningful. Those are rooted in the fact that you've both given yourselves in costly ways for one another. It's there that true friendship is really defined. And not only that, it's there that true friendship is really proved in those kind of costly places. So, so we see that friendship is a matter of timing. David saw his trouble, and Jonathan rose and went to David. But friendship is also a matter of entering. Jesus entered into the sin-stained reality of our existence to lift us up in life. He entered our chaos, and he calls us to enter the hardships of one another. And so we just ask the question in a different way, really, that we asked before. I wonder if there's a person's circumstances you need to enter. Is, is there a situation you've been separating yourself in, maybe because it's wildernessy, maybe it's chaotic? With God's help, we need to enter those places of need. It's what we're called to do. It's actually what we're equipped to do by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus, to love in those kind of ways. And then, and then maybe we can talk about the other side of that question. Are you in a messy wilderness situation that's chaotic and dangerous? And instead of remaining alone, do you need to ask for somebody to come and enter that place with you? We need each other, and sometimes it can be very difficult to ask when we're in places of need. You remember how, how this balances what we saw about David and Jonathan back in chapter 20? In this one, Jonathan arises and goes to David. Back in chapter 20, David's the one who went to Jonathan. And we need to have that balance of an exercise of friendship in our life. Sometimes we're the one, ones who need to rise and go to somebody and say, I need you to be my friend in my chaos right now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, human beings exist in duality, and it is in this dependence on the other that their creatureliness exists. It is in our dependence on the other that our creatureliness exists. In other words, to be really human means to be really dependent on one another. So we need each other. This is, this is part of God's design for us. Even as we depend upon the Lord, it is the Lord's provision, like Paul made clear in that 2 Corinthians passage. Even as we depend on the Lord, it's God's provision to use His people in our lives to support us. King David needed it. The Apostle Paul needed it. Even the Lord Jesus Himself leaned on His friends, didn't He? In that dark, dark evening in the Garden of Gethsemane where He says, you know, come further in with me. Come further in and pray. They'll fail Him. Jesus never fails us but he called on his friends to support him. In our own lives, we can begin to think that isolation is an okay game to play. Why would we ever bring someone else into this mess? But that is not, first of all, truly human thinking. We're made to need each other, and that is not gospel thinking. We're called to give of ourselves to one another. So the Lord on high, who is the Lord who entered our human experience, he created us for this. He created us to need each other, which means that we not only enter the danger of others, but we ask others to enter our wilderness too. And we thank the Lord that he's put us together in the company of his people to exercise ourselves very uniquely in this way as a church. And this, this strikes me from time to time in relationships I've developed outside of the church over the last years. Uh, because when people find out I'm a pastor, they usually respond in one of two ways. Uh, the, the first way is a response of a kind of mystified indifference. Like, what in the world are you even talking about? I don't know what that, that doesn't make any sense. Then they change the subject and want to talk about something else. So, so one response when they find out is, is mystified indifference. The, the, the other way people regularly respond is, is they start to tell me stuff. Because isn't that what pastors do? You sit in the confession box and they start to tell you all these things that are, that are troubling, which is, which is fine and that's, and that's good. 
Um, and, and even I had this experience with an Uber driver this week who, who just started telling me all these kinds of things once he found out I was a pastor. And so often in those kind of situations, I think to myself, what this person just needs is a real friend. What they need is somebody to sit with who will listen to them and who will bear these burdens with them that they can speak about these things with and be encouraged by. And it leaves me sorry for them and it leaves me thankful for the church. Which is actually a big part of our evangelistic impulse as a community of God's people. People need people to support them. We need people to support us. And we recognize that in the uniqueness of the community of the fellowship of the saints, we have this sacrificial love ethos personified by Christ himself that gives us this sweet evangelistic call to people as we ask them to enter that place of care. So often people simply need to come and feel that place of rest. I invited my Uber driver. He didn't come. But, but we need these people to be able to enter and say, here's a place where folks will engage in the hardship. They'll sit and listen. We need to be those listeners and to be able to extend this kind of grace. And so this is the great benefit of being gathered together as God's people in the body of Christ. You know, that body of Christ language that, uh, that, that Paul uses, which Jesus used used first. It's, it's a purposeful metaphor. We are the body of Christ. Christ mediates His graces to us through our engagement with one another. Christ is friend to me in my time of need when you're friend to me in my time of need. Right? And, we, and we just need to be renewed in that. And not just that, but, but we need to invite others into that community of grace. You're my friends. Right? I'm your friend. At least I hope I am. If I'm not, don't tell me. It'll hurt my feelings. But, but we, we are each other's friends because Jesus calls us friends. And then he sets us down in the wildernessy, tall forest, danger and plain sight experiences of life together. And he calls us to get busy supporting one another, even through the most chaotic days. So Jonathan Edwards' daughter Esther, she, she was right. Friends are refreshment to the soul. And, and we need each other for this by God's design. And ultimately by Christ's example, we need this. So here we have, uh, we here we have something very helpful for us. Friendship in the wilderness. We'll think about this a little more next week. But but as for now, there's timing that we can meditate on this week, and there's entering. There's timing and there's entering. If there's somebody you need to go care for right now, as a minister of Christ, it's an important question that we can ask and answer, knowing that Jesus' business is that of supporting us as we go and care for those who are His own. Let's pray together. So, Father, we are thankful for your word, and we pray that we would be uh, transformed by it, we would be encouraged by it, that we recognize that your word, uh, infused with your grace, is a call to action for us, and we pray that we would uh, turn toward one another well, we would turn toward others outside our immediate community and extend the kind of love you call us to, and that even as we do that, um, others would be brought in to the, to the family of faith, to the fellowship of the saints as we care for one another in a way that reflects Christ's own care for us. We ask for this in His name. Amen.